passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. The question about uh, God's will for your life, the idea of finding God's will, is probably one of the most asked questions that there is uh, for for Christians today. If you do a a quick Google search for discovering God's will or or finding God's will or how do I find God's will, uh, you will come up with a a very uh, manageable 60.2 million different answers to that question. How do I find God's will? And honestly, the reason why there are so many people talking about it is, is for good reason. We want to know God's will because we want greater guidance. When we go through life, we want to know if we should take that job or should we take this job? Should we marry this person or should we not marry that person? Should I go to that school or should I go to this school? Should our church take that step of faith or should it take this step of faith? Should we move into a new house across town or should we just move out of state? But of course, when you have 60.2 million different answers to the question about God's will, then the waters can get pretty muddy relatively quickly. We can be left looking at the will of God, looking for the will of God a lot like my family Easter egg hunts when I was an adolescent, when I was growing up. When I was younger, growing up in southwest Iowa, my extended family would gather together on Easter afternoon for an Easter egg hunt. Every single person in the family would have one egg and one egg only. And that name, your name would be written on that egg and it was your goal, it was your job to find that egg. And inevitably, you would be able to find every single other person's egg except for your own. And sometimes I feel like that's what we can feel like God's will is like. We can find a lot of other wills. We can find out what God wants to do for other people, or at least that's what we think. But we can never find God's will for our lives. And it seems like God is only dropping hints for us, saying, you're getting warmer, you're getting warmer. Oh, now you're colder. Hurry up. You are running out of time. Or perhaps we think of God's will even less helpfully than that. We look at God's will like a corn maze where there are many paths before us, but there is only one that will work, and there is little to no guidance for us to find that last or that right path. How do we make the right decision? How do we make sure that we don't end up in a dead end in our life? How do we make sure that we don't end up being lost or missing God's will entirely? Or we could think of God's will like my favorite book genre when I was little. When I was younger, uh, my favorite type of book was the choose-your-own-adventure novel. Maybe you are familiar with those types of books. You're reading to the story, and then you come to a moment where you have to make a decision. And for example, you are walking down a path, and you need to go to the left or you need to go to the right. And if you choose to go to the left side of the path, then you have to turn to page 32. And if you choose to go to the right, then you have to uh, turn to page 58. And you continue to make these different decisions as you go on, and that affects how your story goes. And a lot of the stories were not all that great with the ending, and only a few of them were ones that I actually wanted. Is that what God's will is like, trying to find God's will? Do we live in a world where God is wanting to punish us if we don't choose or make the right decisions? After all, this is a world where people make very important life decisions by consulting fortune cookies, horoscopes, 
just going with their gut feeling. Even Christians are not immune to this. They make crucial decisions in a relatively flippant way. They will open the Bible at random and assume that that is God's will for them in whatever verse they find. So just imagine for a second that there is a couple that is deciding whether they should get married or not, and they really want to know if it is God's will for them to get married. And so they decide to pray together, and then they go their separate ways, and they don't know what they're going to read uh, in the Bible, and so they just randomly open up the Bible separately. The, The man in the relationship trying to discover God's will opens up to the book of Proverbs and reads this, Proverbs 4, 6. Do not forsake her, and she will keep you. Love her, and she will guard you. And as he reads that, he says, that's it. That's exactly what I was looking for from God. That is the answer. Yes, I'm going to marry this woman. To say nothing of the fact that Proverbs is actually talking about wisdom right there, not at all about a woman. And so he comes with this confidence that God has answered, has revealed his will The only problem is the significant other also opens her Bible, and she opens her Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 28. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. That marriage is not going to go well, or at least that proposal is not going to go well. Does God give us any insight when we have difficult decisions to make? Does he give us any insight when it comes to discovering his will in our lives? And that's what we're going to be looking at for these next few weeks as we study uh, just a brief three-week series. This morning, we're going to begin that series, and we're going to just wrestle through what is God's will for our lives? What is God's will for our lives? Next week, we're going to look at uh, how do we make difficult decisions as best as we are able according to the Bible. And then after that, uh, what I'm really excited for in a couple weeks, we're going to look at the book of Acts. And we're going to see how the early church made decisions and how God guided the early church. This morning, we're going to talk specifically about what the Bible reveals to us about God's will. Because the Bible does actually say quite a bit about God's will. The only thing is, it can be relatively confusing for us, because when the will of God is described in the Bible, it can mean a number of different things as we have, uh, as we soon will see. And so this morning, we're going to lay the foundation for our search for God's will as we discover what God wants us to do in our lives. We're going to be looking at a couple different passages from Scripture, specifically three different passages from Scripture that describe to us God's will for each and every one of us here this morning. So as we approach God's word, let's pray once more. Uh, Jesus, as we uh, celebrated last week, we are so very thankful for your sacrifice for us. And we rejoice that before your crucifixion, you promised to send us your spirit, saying that you would not leave us as orphans, and that is such good news for us when we have difficult decisions to make. And so God, as we begin this morning, we thank you first and foremost for just dwelling among your people, specifically for dwelling in your people through your spirit. And God, as we approach this important topic this morning, we do ask that you would be the one who comes and speaks to us. This life is short. We don't want to waste our lives. So give us wisdom, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, before we begin looking at these different passages, these three passages that talk about God's will, I do think it is appropriate for us to just ask the question, why? 
Why do we care so much about God's will? What are the, what are the motives in your life for why you want to know God's will for your life? And there are a number of different reasons, and some of them are positive, and, and some of them are less than positive, and, and frankly, some of them are downright negative. One of the, the primary reasons why we want uh, to, uh, to know God's will for our lives um, is, is a great one, and it's frankly, as we mentioned just in that prayer, that we want to please God. We want to please God. We know that the life that we live is short, that God has entrusted us with just a short, small amount of time, and so we want to make sure that we use our lives, that we spend our lives doing something that God wants us to do and not doing something that God didn't intend us to do. Over the past few weeks, Silas, uh, as you just saw him up here a few minutes ago, Silas uh, and I have, um, we've been doing a lot of puzzles together. We've just started doing puzzles, and uh, he's, he's a bright kid, um, and he's gotten pretty good at those puzzles relatively quickly, but when we first started doing those puzzles, uh, he would have one piece of that puzzle, and it was his determination to make that piece go wherever he wanted it to go. And he would fixate on that, regardless of whether it fit or not, whether it matched that part of the picture or not, whether it was the right puzzle or not. He wanted it to go there, and so he would focus all of his efforts and energy on putting that puzzle piece right there. Now, as you can imagine, this was a waste of time, and it was a frustration for him. He would get very frustrated that no matter how hard he tried to make this puzzle piece fit in a certain way, it would not fit because there's only one right way to put a puzzle together. And sometimes I think we can think of God's will in exactly that same way. We don't want to waste our lives, and we think that there is only one way that the puzzle will fit together. So we don't want to waste time with our lives with a puzzle piece that we've been entrusted, the, the one life, the gifts, the talents that God has given us, trying to make that piece fit into a place where it is not meant to go. So as we, we ask the question, why do I want to know God's will? Let's just start with a great reason. We want to please God. But of course, there are other reasons that aren't as obvious, that aren't as commendable. One that I think is, is uh, really important for us to recognize today is frankly that we just have too many choices in our lives. We have too many choices in our lives. Today is a generation or is an era where uh, it is unlike the rest of human history, where we have so many choices facing us that we can actually be paralyzed by the decisions that are facing us. This past week, I decided to follow the example of a, a professor. Uh, his name was Barry Schwartz. He wrote a book called The Paradox of Choice about this specific uh, paralyzation that comes from having so many options. And uh, in the book, he decides to go to his local grocery store and just count how many different options are available to him. So I decided to go to Walmart, trying to quantify in retail how many options are before us. And, and the results were absolutely staggering. I went into Walmart and I discovered that there are 175 different types of cereals that you can choose from if you go to Walmart. There are about 225 different types of chips for you to enjoy, over 200 different types of juices, over 60 different types of barbecue sauce. So if you want to try all of those out, good luck. Uh, over 800 different types of shampoo and hair products. That's just astounding. There are about 150 different types of teas that are available at Walmart. About 20 of those will help you stay awake, and about 20 of those will help you fall asleep. And finally, my favorite, there are about 20 different types of dirt that are available at Walmart for you to buy as well. 
Now, those of you who have lived in a different part of the country, even if it's just a a few hours away, you are familiar that these are just a fraction of the options that are actually out there, that are actually available to us. Crystal and I, we used to live in Chicago. When we moved here five years ago, it took us months to find a new favorite pizza sauce because the sauce that we loved in Chicago was not available for us here. And even now that we know what our new favorite pizza sauce is in Spencer, Iowa, there is only one store that sells it. And so if we are going to go and get our pizza sauce, we have to go to that specific store. Now, with all of these different options facing us, it of course is no surprise that it is a terrible idea for Crystal to send me to the store especially without a detailed list. Otherwise, we will be on a video call and I will be showing her all of the different options, all 175 different cereal options for her to make the decision. The number of choices facing us in retail really shows us the difficulty or the complexity of making a choice in the rest of life. And so for graduating seniors, for college students, they ask the question, should I choose this career path or should I choose that one? Future homeowners trying to make a decision on a house can either ask, should we stay here or should we move? And then if you decide to move, you are faced with the question of, well, what kind of house do you want? Where do you want to live? Should we buy this house or that one? Families are forced to ask the question, should we stay here or should we move to a different city? And on and on and on and on, the choices are huge in number. You see, the overabundance of choice is a relatively new phenomenon. If you go back 75 years, 100 years, 150 years, this is something that's virtually unheard of. Your career path, with a few exceptions, was decided for you when you were born because of who you were born to. Who you would marry was a relatively easy decision. Where you were going to live, a relatively easy decision because you would follow the same vocational path as your parents. You would probably live near your parents, and if you didn't live with them, then you would live within a few miles. And of course, you would marry someone from the same community that you were from. So the explosion of different options facing us comes to this paralysis by analysis that actually faces us as Christians. We were left wondering a question that has never really been asked until about 100 years ago. What is God's will for me? It's a relatively new question. Third reason we want to know God's will for our lives is probably the opposite side of the positive one, uh, of number one. Positive, of course, being that we want to please God. The negative side of that is that we want perfect fulfillment in this life. If we're being honest, a lot of times the reason why we, don't, uh, we, we want to know God's will is because we want to avoid any sort of failure. We want to avoid any sort uh, of lack of fulfillment. We desire a perfect fulfillment in our lives. And so, the reason why many people don't make a choice or any choice, or they have such a hard time making a choice, is because they want to avoid any sort of letdown that might face them. And so when people are making a decision, they are left wondering if they actually made the wrong decision. They begin to think of, what if we would have gone this way? They have regrets, they have doubts. Should I have taken that job? Should I have stayed put instead of moving? Should I have gone to this college or that college or any college in general? But this, contrary to what some may seem to say, is actually perfectly natural. 
Philippians 4 uh, may have come to mind as I was talking about this perfect fulfillment. Paul speaks there about a peace that surpasses understanding. And a lot of times we can take that and say that it is available for all Christians anytime they make a decision. And so we don't have to make a decision until we have a perfect peace about that decision. But that's not what Paul means when he writes that. Paul is not talking about a no-regrets mindset of peace when we are making a decision. After all, big decisions by their very nature are going to lead us to ask questions of what if. We are going to be asking questions of, well, what if we would have taken that job? What if we would have moved? What if we lived there instead of here? What if I had chosen that school or chosen this career instead of a different one? And those things aren't necessarily bad. They aren't inherently bad for us. Not be, it's not because we're not following God's will, but it's just because God created us finite. We're not omniscient. We don't know everything. And we long to know what we don't know. We wonder what if. Now, we could go on and on for different reasons of wanting to know God's will, but I think there's just one more for us, probably the the most serious facing us as Christians for why we want to know God's will is that we actually just want assurance that everything is going to be okay. Before we make a decision, we want assurance that everything is going to be okay for us. The the phrase, I want to know God's will, can actually just be Christian speak for for us saying, God, just tell me what to do so nothing bad will happen to me, and I won't have to face the danger of failure. I won't have to face the danger of the unknown. But that's not the way God works. In his book, uh, Just Do Something, Kevin DeYoung, uh, he points us to the book of uh, of Esther, and he says that that's not at all how God works in the story of Esther. In fact, it shows us that God works in the exact opposite. Rather than assuring us that everything is going to be okay so that we can make a decision, oftentimes being faithful to God means that instead we're going to have to risk everything, that we're going to have to step out in faith without the assurance that our decisions are going to work out. Many of us are familiar with the story of Esther. Esther tells us of, a, uh, of an evil nobleman. His name is, is Haman. He has this plot to kill all of the Jewish people because of a petty vendetta against a man named Mordecai. He decides that he's going to kill all the people, all the uh, Jews in the Persian Empire. And uh, Mordecai uh, actually finds out about this plot. And so he approaches his uh, cousin, uh, the Esther, who he has guardianship over, who is actually the queen married to uh, the the king of the Persian Empire, empire, and and says, as the queen, you're the only person who has a chance to do something about this. And so you need to stick your neck out and actually try to stop this. And Esther, at first, she says, no. If the king doesn't respond the right way, it could cost me my life. And Mordecai's response in in Esther 4 is, is very powerful. This is what he says. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than any of the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Notice that last phrase. Mordecai is mentioning this. He doesn't speak with certainty. He says, God may have put you, Esther, in this spot. He might have put you in your current role and your current position just for this purpose. Verse 14, he doesn't say, God has put you here to do this. 
No, he, he, he takes a much more humble approach. He says, it's possible. As I look at all of the evidence, I am concluding that from my limited perspective, this could be the reason why you were abducted from your home all of those years ago and made a pagan king's wife. Now, how does Esther respond? Does Esther ask for a sign? Does she wait until God reveals her will? Does she wait until God assures her that everything is going to be okay if she makes this decision? Remember, this is a a relatively time-sensitive decision. Well, Esther continues, and the book describes what takes place in Esther's decision. It says this, Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, which is the capital, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do, then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish." Esther doesn't wait for months to make a decision. She doesn't wait for God to reveal his will to her. She simply prays. She asks other people to be praying for her, and she does what is right. She doesn't ask for them to pray that God will reveal to her if this is the right decision or not. Instead, she just says a prayer, asks other people to pray for her that she would succeed in her decision. See, we live in a cultural atmosphere that wants assurance that everything is going to be all right when we take a step of faith, when we make a decision. But we would be wise to take into account Esther's life here. Esther is courageous. She is willing to take a step of faith, even if it means she is going to fail. And failure for her was a lot more severe than it is for us. We should learn from Esther the courage to fail. Now, before we continue, it would be wise for us to to just close this section by by pausing and asking ourselves, what is the reason for why I want to know God's will? Why do I want God's will when it comes to making a decision? Why is it that sometimes I can be paralyzed when I have to make a big decision? Is it because I want to please God? Or is it because there's just too many choices available? Or is it because I want perfect fulfillment? Or is it because I need courage in my life? Honestly, if we take the time to look at it, we will most likely see it as a combination of more than just one of these things, which is why it is so important for us as we look at the Bible to see what God's will for us is. So let's look at these three passages. God's will, the most basic part or most basic piece about God's will for your life and for every single other person's life on the face of the planet is found in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Consider these words, starting in verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Here, Paul is describing the foundation of God's will for your life, for my life, for every single person who has ever lived, and that is this. God's will is for you to be saved. 
God's will is for you to be saved. Notice Paul's words in verse 4 here. God desires that all people be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. We can't go any further in discerning God's will for our lives and trying to discern how we should follow God faithfully until we come to grips with this fact that God wants us to be saved. It is utterly useless for us to try to pursue God's will for what college we're going to go to or what job we should take or what marriage we should be part of if we are not first a part of God's family. God's will is for humanity to be saved. Indeed, that's what 2 Peter tells us is the reason that this will, this desire of God, is the reason that God is delaying bringing the day of the Lord. It's so that more and more people can actually start to follow God's will for their life. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Here, in 1 Timothy, this word desire. Here in 2 Peter, this word wish or wishing. Both of these have the same root in Greek, and both of them mean will. In fact, it would be faithful to translate both of them, that God wills that people would be saved, or that God is patient, not willing that anyone should perish. It is a part of God's will that people would be saved. So, first and foremost, if you are going to find God's will for your life, it means to find salvation in Jesus. It means to confess your sins, to repent of your sins to God and believe and trust in his name is the only place where you can be saved, where you can find that salvation. It is to recognize that Jesus died in your place and rose victoriously over sin and death so that you could also experience resurrection so that you also could be a part of God's family. So if you want to follow God's will, the first and foremost thing that you need to do is to find salvation in Jesus. But this passage doesn't just stop there. It doesn't just stop with our salvation, a word to our own salvation. The context of 1 Timothy and the context of 2 Peter actually is not just focused on God's desire for you to be saved, but really God's desire, God's will for everyone to be saved. And so if you are a part of God's family, if you are a part of God's children, then God's will for your life is to participate in sharing God's desire, God's will for other people. I have to say that there are a few things that are more annoying than someone coming up to you and saying, I know what God's will is for your life. And they share something that they want for your life, not necessarily what God wants for your life. But the Bible actually gives us permission to do that here. It tells us that we can confidently know what God's will is for every single person on the face of the planet, is that they would come to know Christ. Paul, at the beginning of 1 Timothy chapter 2, tells us that the church should continually be in prayer for people to come to faith in the gospel, that they would actually do what God wants them to do, that they would take part in God's will for their lives to be saved. And he ends in verse 7 by talking about his own role. 
He said, this is what I've been called to do. This is why I'm an apostle, specifically an apostle to the Gentiles. It's so that I can share God's will with other people, God's desire for their salvation with other people. He is going to invite people to the church. He's going to share the the experience of, of God's goodness and God's will for Paul's life, for every single person that Paul encountered, for every single person here, for every single person you encounter, is this that we would find salvation in Jesus. It's the foundation of God's will. Another passage, if we look at it, tells us uh, more about God's will, Ephesians chapter 5. It says this, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your hearts, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Here, Paul is telling us another crucial piece of knowing God's will for our lives. As living as God's children, children of the light, specifically in the context of Ephesians, he culminates this charge with a calling for us to not be foolish, but to understand what the will of the Lord is in verse 17, which can honestly leave us foolish, feeling foolish, because we're not exactly sure what God's will is. But then in verse 18, he describes that. He says, this is what it means, basically, to, be, to, to know the will of the Lord. It's to not be drunk with wine, but instead to be filled with the Spirit. So if we want to know God's will for us, first and foremost, it is to find salvation in Christ. Second is to be filled with the Spirit. Now, we might be asking, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? And we should probably pause and say that this does not mean that it means that we should all receive the Holy Spirit as though that there are some Christians who have the Holy Spirit, some who don't, and it is our responsibility to experience a second baptism in the Spirit. The Bible is, is abundantly clear that that is not how it works, that we receive as a part of our salvation the promised Holy Spirit, that we are baptized in the Spirit in salvation. Earlier in Ephesians, Paul says exactly that. Ephesians chapter 1. In him you also, him being Jesus, in Jesus you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, the praise of his glory. In Romans 8, which we looked at last week, Romans 8 says the exact same thing, just in the negative. Paul says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, or uh, another way of saying the Holy Spirit, does not belong to him. So for us to be Christian means to have, have the Holy Spirit. And yet, at the exact same time, Ephesians makes it clear that we are continually and increasingly to live a Spirit-filled life. Or maybe a better way of saying that is to live a, a Spirit-controlled life. The context of our passage in Ephesians 5, we start in Ephesians 4, verse 17, and we go through the end of Ephesians 5. It tells us what it looks like to live a spirit-filled, or maybe, again, a better way of saying that is a spirit-controlled life. Consider what it says. To be spirit-filled means to be renewed in the image of God in righteousness and holiness, 
verse, or chapter 4, verses 22 through 24. It means to speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4, verse 25. It means not to sin in our anger, Ephesians 4, 26. It means to not give the devil a foothold in our moral failure in our lives, Ephesians 4, 27. It means doing good in this world through your God-given talents, Ephesians 4, 28. It means having pure speech, Ephesians 4, 29. It means putting away all bitterness, wrath, anger, slander, and malice, Ephesians 4, 31. It means being kind to one another, Ephesians 4, 32. It means forgiving others just as God has forgiven you, Ephesians 4, 32. It means imitating God in your life, Ephesians 5, 1. It means walking in love, Ephesians 5, 2. It means being sexually pure, Ephesians 5, 3. It means not coveting, Ephesians 5, 3. It means not participating in the unfruitful works of darkness, Ephesians 5, 7 through 12. It means walking wisely in the world, not as the world walks, Ephesians 5, 15. It means encouraging other Christians through the word and through song, Ephesians 5, 19. It means giving thanks to God, Ephesians 5, 20. It means submitting to others out of reverence for Christ, Ephesians 5.21. I meant to say all of that in one breath. There's a lot there in this passage about being children of God, about being children of the light, but it's all talking about what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Take time. Read Ephesians 4, Ephesians 5. It tells us what it means for us to be filled with the Spirit. It means to increasingly reflect the person of Christ in your life. To be filled with the Spirit is to increasingly reflect the person of Christ in your life. That's how all of this started. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24 tells us that we are to be renewed in the image of God and righteousness and in holiness. And it is the Spirit who increasingly enables us to live this life that I just described. So that's what it means to live a life filled with the Spirit. But of course, that doesn't tell us how to be filled with the Spirit. The opposite is easy. Ephesians 5.18 says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. The, easy, the first part is easy. So how do we get filled with the Spirit? The book of Acts is, is uh, really crucial in understanding this. It reveals this important connection between the work of the Spirit and something that each and every one of us can do in our lives. One of the fascinating things about the book of Acts is as you read it, every single time there's a great working of the Spirit, it is connected to something in your life. And that source is the Word of God. When the church devotes themselves to the Word of God, then the Spirit moves mightily among them. Consider just a few verses. Acts chapter 6, verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Acts eight fourteen. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. Acts 11, verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were thought throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. Acts 12, verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. The context of each of these different passages tells us that God expanded his church. God is at work through his spirit, bringing the gospel to people who have not yet received it because the word of God was central to these people's lives. So if you want to know what it means to be filled with the spirit, it means to devote yourself to the word of God. If you want to be a person that increasingly reflects the character, the person of Christ in your life, which is God's will for you, then it is to devote yourself to the word of God. The word of God that is given to you will help you 
to be increasingly filled with the Spirit, increasingly governed by the Spirit, increasingly controlled by the Spirit, increasingly living the way God would have you live. That's the second piece of God's will for your life. God's will is that first you would be saved, and second, that you would be filled with the Spirit. One final passage I want to look at this morning, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, says this, starting in verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgresses and wrongs his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we, are told, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. According to this passage, what is God's will for your life? We've seen that God's will is that you be saved. God's will is that you be filled with the Spirit. And here we see that God's will is for you to be holy. God's will is for you to be holy. That's what the word sanctification means. It means to become holy. Here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul is giving us three ways that we are to live out God's call, God's will of holiness in our lives. First in verse 3, Paul tells us that to be holy is to stay away from immorality, specifically sexual immorality, to stay away from the temptation of immorality. Leviticus, 1 Peter, both of these passages tell us that God charges his people to be holy because he is holy. And as we live a spirit-filled life, as we increasingly live a holy life, we are called to live one that is free from immorality. Second, verses four and five reveal to us that to be set apart, to be holy, which is God's will for each of us, we are not to live like the rest of the world, but instead that we are to be self-controlled, specifically or particularly over our bodies. Self-control can be so neglected uh, as a virtue in today's culture. Today we can be taught to indulge in whatever and wherever our heart desires, but God's will for your life is for you to be in control, to be self-controlled, and to be holy. And finally, verse 6 tells us that to be holy, as God desires for us, means that we are not to take advantage of other people. The implication of that is that we are to live for others, that we are to serve others. That's what it means in one sense to be holy. It's to live for others, to not take advantage of them, to serve them when we are able. If you want to know God's will for your life, it is for you to be holy. And these three passages, when we take them together, they serve as the bedrock of God's will for your life. No matter your career path, no matter your marital status, no matter where you live, no matter where you decide to, to move or, or whether you decide to stay, whether you choose this college, whether you choose that college, whether you choose to go to this church or a different church here in town, I can confidently tell you that God's will for your life is to find salvation in Jesus, it is to be filled with the Spirit, and it is to be holy. Now, there are certain times in life where we're faced with big decisions with tough decisions and so we might say Jordan I, I get it God's will is for me to be saved God's will is for me to be filled with the spirit God's will is for me to be holy but that doesn't give me a lot of guidance in this decision that I have to make 
Because after all, if I'm being honest, I can answer yes to this job or that. I can answer yes to this college or that. I can be a Christian here or there. I can be faithful and and being holy in this job or in that job. And so what do we do with that? The very spiritual answer from the Bible when we are faced with big, tough decisions is if we can check off that we are saved, we can check off that we are increasingly being filled with the Spirit to reflect the image of God as Christ did, and if we can check off that we are increasingly growing in holiness, then the answer to those big, tough decisions in our lives where we can say yes to either one is simply to say, do whatever you want. Do whatever you want. If you are increasingly being filled with the Spirit, if you are increasingly becoming holy, where do you think that those desires and wants came from? Well, for the most part, they come from God. Or at least God permits them by His sovereignty. Psalm 37 is a very helpful verse when it comes to understanding God's will for our lives. It says this, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. That verse can be turned very trite, but it's so true. We have to realize God wants our happiness. If we are pursuing God, if we are delighting in God, then we can do whatever we want. This passage doesn't promise us that we'll be given all the desires of our hearts. It doesn't make tough decisions easy for us, but it gives us freedom to recognize that we can do whatever we want. We can be faithful in serving God here or there. God gives us permission to have desires, and as a good father, he wants us to walk in faithfulness. Whatever our vocation is, whether we, whatever college we go to, whatever relationship status we desire, but we have to be walking with God. And as we walk with God, God will open doors, God will close doors, God will guide us as we walk with him. Proverbs says exactly that. Proverbs chapter 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Notice the last verse there, verse 6. If you are acknowledging God, then he will make straight your paths. He's going to take care of it if you are pursuing him. It doesn't say that you're going to get the job that you want doesn't say that you are going to get the relationship that you want or the scholarship that you need to go to a certain school, but God will guide you through supernaturally ordinary means if you are walking with him. So some people uh, occasionally ask me why I became a pastor. And I will oftentimes give a joking answer. It's because I couldn't survive biology class my freshman year of college. I say that half-heartedly uh, or lightheartedly, um, but there's, there's a whole lot of truth to that. There's a whole lot of truth to that. I went to college. Uh, I was pre-med for my major. Uh, two weeks in, I was no longer pre-med as my major. I didn't like biology. Maybe I could have survived it. Who knows? I just didn't like it. And yet I loved my theology classes, and so I made a very, very, very spiritual decision to change my mind. And now I'm here. And now I'm a pastor. That's, that's pretty much it. It was very, very supernatural. It was, you know, God opened the clouds and spoke to me and said, you cannot survive if you continue taking this biology class. 
I'm just kidding. No, it was, it was very natural. Of course there was prayer. Of course there was an affirmation of giftedness by the local church. Of course I gave a lot of thought to the process. And next week we're going to talk about all of those different things as we try to be the type of people that God guides through wisdom. But rather than God asking God to show us the way, we simply should just be asking God, make us faithful. Make us faithful wherever you have called us. Help us to walk faithfully with you. For me, I realized I wanted to be a pastor. I didn't want to be a doctor. And I wanted to be a teaching pastor. I didn't want to be a youth pastor, although I, I do wish that I could play some of the games that youth pastors get to play sometimes. Crystal and I wanted to live in Iowa or the Midwest. We didn't want to live somewhere else. Did all those wants guarantee me this role? No, of course not. But God used those to guide my decision-making And here I am. See, that's the principle that we should have this morning. When it comes to God's will, when you're trying to discover God's will for your life, you can remember this. God cares infinitely more about who you are than where you are or what you do. God cares infinitely more about who you are than where you are or what you do. The reality is, you can be faithfully walking with God while you live here or whether you live somewhere else. The flip side is true as well. You can be unfaithfully walking with God here or somewhere else. You can be faithfully walking with God in a relationship with one person or single or with a a different person. Unless you're married, then, then you can't actually do that. You can only be faithfully walking with God with one person. God cares more about who you are than where you are or what you do. I think we need to make a realization that God cares far more about you faithfully following his will at 6 a.m. every single day than he does about what your job is. Now, for some of you, if you're not an early riser, maybe it's 7 a.m. What I mean by that is God cares far more about you being faithfully uh, follow, uh, be, being a faithful follower of him every single day, spending time with him, pursuing him, then he cares about what job you have or what your marital status is. If you want to get married, do it. If you don't want to get married, don't do it. If you want that job, do it. As long as we are faithfully following God. So this week, follow God's will. Next week, we're going to look at how God guides us, gives us the tools uh, through wisdom to make those difficult decisions because as many of you, if not all of you know, this can be so simple on paper, and yet when a decision comes toward you, it is very, very difficult because we can honor God here or there. And so next week, we're going to look at how we make decisions that, that look at what is best for us and for our families if we have them through God's wisdom. But this week, follow God's will. Follow God's will by com- coming to salvation if you've never experienced that before. If you're not sure, if you haven't placed your faith in Christ, that's a crucial first step for discovering God's will in your life. Follow God's will by pursuing salvation for others through praying for them through sharing the gospel, through inviting them to church. Follow God's will in your life by being filled with the Spirit, by spending time with Him in Scripture to become more and more like Christ. Follow God and His will by pursuing holiness. And if you're doing all of these things, then feel free to do what you want. Because God will work it out along the way.
if we are faithfully walking with him. God cares far more about who you are than where you are or what you do. Let's pray. God, we thank you uh, for the freedom that we find in your word. The freedom that we can be who you have created us to be. The freedom to do what you have placed in our hearts as a desire. And God, while this may not make decisions much easier, it is a relief to know that we can faithfully follow you as pastors and missionaries, as school teachers, as mechanics, as farmers, as cashiers, and everything in between, God. God, thank you for your word. We ask that you would bless us this week as we seek to follow you faithfully. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Once a month, we respond in worship to to hearing God's word through a time or an opportunity for us to partake in communion. And this Sunday, we're going to do just that. We're going to remember the sacrifice of Christ for us, just as he has commanded us to do. So here in a few moments, we're going to sing a song, and we're going to pass out some bread and uh, some juice, and it is a way for us to remember what Christ has done for us here um, as a part of his church. If you uh, are a Christian, if you have professed a faith in Christ, then you are welcome to partake of this table. It doesn't matter if you are a member or not of Crosswinds. We just ask that you hold on to that bread and that, cu- uh, and, and that cup until everyone uh, has received So that way we can partake together as a sign of the unity that we have in Christ. Please pray with me once more. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is uh, truth, that it reveals to us your desire for us to remember you. And not only that, but it also gives us the tools to do so faithfully. Even as we just celebrated last week, uh, the incredible cost of Good Friday and the incredible glory of of Easter, we ask that you would be present with us, you would give us confidence that you would infuse our hearts and our bones with a confidence in the glory that awaits us. And it is that glory that unites us and is the reason why we celebrate this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.